Welcome to the Soulful CXO, where we discuss leadership principles, core values, health, wellness, and resiliency. I'm Dr. Rebecca Wynn, the founder and the host of the show. Do you have a topic or guest you would like to be featured on the show? Would you like to be a sponsor? Please reach out to me on LinkedIn or email me at Rebecca at SoulfulCXO.com. Please go to our partner, Cybersecurity Tribe, for weekly show recaps and other resources. Listen and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Now sit back and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Soulful CXO. I'm your host, Dr. Rebecca Wynn. We are pleased to have us today, Joey Johnson. Joey is the award-winning Chief Information Security Officer at Premise Health, a provider of large employer-sponsored health and wellness centers for employees. He leads all organizational efforts related to security operations and engineering, information technology and security compliance, identity access management, policy development, security audit, and vendor risk management to meet the challenging security and compliance demands. He has successfully implemented a proactive security and risk management environment focused on organizational risk awareness that is transformative in the healthcare industry successfully launched a cutting-edge vendor and business associate maturity development program that dynamically empowered business partners and various scales and complexity to meet challenging security and compliance demands, and has worked to develop a team driven by passion and security with a focus on empowering and fostering women in the security field. Before joining Premise Health, he was Chief Security Officer for the United States Department of Commerce Office of Computer Services. Other cybersecurity industries included leadership roles in both public and private sectors, focusing on organizations in federal government, information technology, healthcare, and transportation industries. He has received numerous CISO leadership recognition awards at the global, national, state, and regional levels. He is an advisor for CISO Executive Network, Cybersecurity Collaborative Corporate Leadership Council, the Cyber Theory Advisory Board, the UCLA Global Cyber Institute, and the Journal of Law and Cyber Warfare. He is also an active investor in emerging cybersecurity technology and a global advisor to multiple renowned top-tier technology investment firms in the capacity he also serves as advisory board or board of directors for various portfolio companies. Joey, my friend, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you very much, Becca. I think I think it could be summed up to say I stayed pretty busy. You're doing you travel quite a bit too. Your background though, is, is super fascinating because I, I can't think of another CISO or a bit in our field who started out in archaeology. Can you kind of walk us through that story and, and how that led you to be the great CISO that you are today? Sure. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I think um, you know, going way back to to when I was uh 18, 19 and just just out of school. Um, and honestly, you know, my passion was really around anthropology and, and archaeology, just kind of the, the people sciences. I, I think from the time I was as little as I can remember, I, I found uh, an old box of, of like um, National Geographic magazines outside that someone was getting rid of. It had like 50 of them in it. And it was like I had found treasure. And ever since then, I was kind of hooked on it and, and really just interested in different different cultures and philosophies and and all the historical cultures that brought them together. And so I just kind of always grew up with with a bend towards it. I think for those who can see it, you know, in, in, behind me, you can see all, all the travel books and stuff that I have from, from where we've been. And so it was always just kind of really, really interesting to me. But, you know, what happened is I, I met 
uh, my uh, my lovely bride who I've been with for 26 years when I was 19. And she kind of said, like, so what are you going to do with anthropology exactly? And I kind of said, you know, I don't, I don't know. And I had a friend who uh, at the time, he was in sales for, for Microsoft. And, and I said, well, maybe I'll, I'll give that a shot. I was never really a, a person who wanted to go into sales, but but I just kind of turned it into something I studied in school. And um, I, I found out that I actually was really, really interested in technology. Um, and I was really interested in the security side of it. So it, it kind of went from there. But I will tell you that I think the as I look back, sort of in the way back machine, the lessons that I, that I learned from from that school of study and, and the lessons that I learned from from working in, in in restaurants and dealing with people in that capacity are actually some of the greatest lessons that I've taken with me into my leadership today. Can you share some of those lessons that you think have transferred into your leadership? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, I think, you know, everybody kind of knows, and for those who've worked in restaurants, I certainly know, you know, the customer's always right kind of outlook. But, you know, I, I think it's one unique thing that I that I think that's sort of different and, and maybe even sort of controversial in, in my and my security outlook is is you know I think typically security leaders are really focused on on risk reduction, which is great. It's our job, but you know I, I look at it from a business leader perspective of understanding what the business risk appetite is, and and you know that as crazy as it sounds, those were lessons that I learned when working in in restaurants. You know, you'd have people that would come in and they were upset. They they like they didn't even come there to have a good time. Like they showed up and they're like, I've had a bad day, and I'll make you have a bad day. <laughs> And you had to learn how to diffuse those situations, right? You had to, you had to learn how to spend more time listening than, than than talking and really understanding where someone was coming from. And I kind of made it my personal mission when I had someone who came in that was so frustrated. I was like, I want to make sure that they have a good time when they leave here. I want to make sure that, you know, whatever it is, you know, we find a way to be creative and think about how, how to solve their problem and, and make sure that they, they have the good time that they came here for, whether they want it or not. And, you know, it sounds, it sounds like an odd uh, analysis to make or, or, or an analogy, but really the corollary is, is in business, uh, specifically in security leadership. I mean, you're dealing with very high stakes a lot. Uh, security issues go straight to the top very, very quickly, and people get very panicked very quickly. And so you're kind of having to manage multiple different things, right? You have to manage a leadership audience who this is a very foreign language to, but they understand these are high stakes games. You have to manage a technical team who could be running in different directions and, you know, they're panicking and you have to calm that audience down and and walk them through it. You're having to deal with, you know, legal audiences who are, you know, kind of saying, hey, what's going on? Where are we? Customers, you have to keep keep happy. So there's there's really this this massive sort of people skills, soft skills side side to thing that I think is 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 really, really critically uh, important to, to, to just be able to to get out of the technology. And at the end of the day, you're 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 working with people. You mentioned about tying into the risk appetite of the organization, but a lot of companies, when you ask them, what's your enterprise risk management? What is your risk appetite? They haven't have it defined or well-defined. So how do you recommend that we navigate that? Well, I mean, I think everything starts with relationships, doesn't it? And and the, the way that I've done it, I mean, I've so I've been the CISO at this organization for nearly 14 years now. Uh, I joined Premise Health when when I was honestly the only security person, and we've grown ten to fifteen times in that time, and you know now I've got a team that's almost almost fifty people, so it's grown a lot, right? And but through that whole time, it was really building relationships and listening to the other leaders. Hey, what are you guys dealing with? What are you working on? What's hard for you? What's challenging? I found that there's always a security underpinning that that, that can contribute and help the business in pretty much every vertical. But when you look at it, you know what I found is in talking with those other leaders. 
the world that we live in, even even the cyber people, right? It's moving really, really fast. We're, I mean, every one of us knows, you know, you go to any conference every year, there's there's new acronyms that are getting thrown out by Gartner or whoever. And we're just kind of, sometimes we laugh, but we know it's moving really quick. And it's hard enough for us to keep up with it. But for a non-technical audience, an audience this is a completely foreign language to, you really have to change that message. But what I found was that those leaders they do understand risk. Even if they don't have their sort of risk appetite defined, they kind of inherently know what it is and their level of comfort. They understand execution risk. They understand financial risk. They understand market perception risk. They understand all of these risk dynamics. What they don't always understand really well is, is sort of the cyber world and where the security risk is. And they, what I have found is there's where you're trying to close the risk appetite gap, the challenging thing is they kind of know that there's this big scary monster in the corner called cyber and the cyber threats, but they don't understand really where to allocate resources to it in the best way to get the best ROI. I mean, it seems like there's 500 things that they could apply resources to. And so how do they really get that bang for the buck and, and make sure that they're making the right investments? Yeah, one of the things that I know is always a bigger challenge too is when we're trying to present that to the executives or the leadership board, have you found a the secret sauce, the holy grail, because archaeology, on a, what is an, usually an effective way to try and present those to the board or to the executives? Well, I, I think we found an effective mechanism in in our world, but but also sitting on the other side of the table when I'm when I'm on boards and or advising them, you know, I actually think it's not a one size fits all thing. Every board is different. I mean, we know right now, you know, looking at looking at you know SEC outcomes, that there's really this push to to get that cyber presence directly on boards, but not all of them have them. So it it really depends upon. I think it's almost the same equation of of, of who is the board. You know, what is their personality? What is their outlook? What is their risk appetite? How well do they understand what's happening? Usually at the board level, you know, I I have found. It's it's a narrative. It's I, I'm fortunate enough that I have you know I meet with my board fairly regularly, formally and informally, uh, with different members of those of those groups. Um, you know I, I have found that they haven't they don't really care as much about specific metrics. What they care about is is the narrative and the trajectory of the business and what the direction of the business is and and where it could introduce risk. Right. So you know for example, we started having conversations to say, hey, I can you know I can manage all these metrics over here and I'll do that with my executive team. But at the end of the day. If we were not a software development company, we now want to go look at making some acquisitions of companies that are, because strategically that benefits us. You need to understand that there are subsequent investments we're going to need to make to implement a secure SDLC, right? To to make sure that we can develop software end to end uh, and release it appropriately and have all the security controls in place. We're going to have to protect our source code. We're going to have to protect, you know, how we how we build secure code. We're going to have to worry about open source security issues. Those were the kind of things that they that they kind of ate up and understood. Like, okay, I understand that there's an ancillary additive cost and level of work and effort to kind of do this. And it drove a conversation to say, hey, you know, the thing is that we can scale things pretty well. If you want to buy one software company, you're going to need to make the same investment as you do if you want to buy 10. But if we make those investments, you can then go buy 10 and not have to do this over and over. Because what I found was a lot of times the concern was, was, hey, the cost to to do this thing securely seem disproportionate to to this investment that we want to make over here, and it's like, well, on a one to one basis, that's true. It, it it could be, right? But but it, you know, our job is to make sure that we build a safe hotel for all the people. If you put one person in it or ten thousand people, we still need to build the same safe hotel with the same you know same supplies. So that was kind of part of it. The the other thing that I found on on that is really 
understanding as a security leader, what your relationship is with your own internal executive audience. Because the one thing that you don't want to do is throw the rest of your executive team under the bus is, is make it look like, Hey, I have, I have either an adversarial relationship with them, or I don't have an audience with them. And put things that actually create more consternation and tension within your organization. You really need that alignment with your own executive leaders, I, I believe, to say, hey, what is the narrative you guys are presenting? Because if you're coming in cold from a security story without the context of everything else they're hearing, it's probably going to fall on deaf ears or they're not going to know what to do with it. But if you can say, hey, what's the narrative you're presenting? What are the things you're asking the board to make a decision on, weigh in, opine on, and align the message to that? Um, that tends to be very helpful. Yeah. I know I've witnessed it myself personally, and I've known other peers that I've talked to where we've run into where we just have maybe one or two executives that will not listen. They will not have ears to listen at all. Have you run into that? And then if you have, have you been successful in overcoming it? I know the people I've talked to, we haven't been so successful. So do you have any words around those about how to be successful with people who maybe not innately want to listen to security or maybe just have a personality clash with? Yeah, I mean, and I think it, I think it can be all those things, right? And in, in my past, I mean, again, I'm, I'm very. There's a reason that I've stayed with this organization for so long. We, everyone, kind of rallies around and respects the security mission. But I will tell you that you know, in, in past lives, uh, that was not the case. We had people that just it was a nuisance. It didn't matter what I said. It was it was unimportant. They were going to do the minimum they had to do, and they were going to you know do it begrudgingly. Um, I, you know, I, I think you know it's 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 like anything, right? If, if there's an audience that you're not going to win over. Focus your attention elsewhere. I mean, as security folks, we we we're not going to run out of things to do, and you know you can you can get inertia behind enough of other initiatives that eventually you know you can circle back around to them and, and pull them in, right? But if you're spending all your time swimming upstream, you're you're not going to get a bunch of other stuff done. And that gave me time to be kind of creative. And like I said, it kind of went back to like, I would still try to keep the relationship open with those leaders, even if I knew that they were against the security mission, to just understand what they're working on, what their challenges are, what are going on. And I found that over time, we would find ways to launch security initiatives that could actually benefit them, right? So if it was my chief medical officer that was super annoyed about all this stuff because MFA is a big pain and they don't want us in their, you know, their clinical engineering team messing with their medical devices and this, that, the other, we could kind of come back the other way and say, hey, by the way, you know, I'm not sure if you guys are interested in adopting this. Some other business units are, but we found ways to really streamline logins through SSO and through some other things. Here's what it could look like. Here's what that could look like for for some of your clinicians. Right. That, that, that was a different approach to saying, hey, I'm coming with a hammer saying, hey, I'm coming with some things that I think can really be beneficial. And I'm curious if you're interested. That did tend to change the conversation again. But, you know, Rebecca, it's kind of like going back to the to the restaurant analogy. Right. Like, how do I how do I get you to a better place? What what are the things that I can do to influence the outcome the way that I want it? And it's not always going to be successful, but it, it doesn't mean that you abandon it. Yeah, I think one of the things that I've seen, I don't know if you've seen that, is where, like when you said, multi-factor authentication is we're just going to flip it on for everybody and we're not going to look to see how they might be impacted with applications they need and things along those lines. I tell people, it's not always that they're the notion of it, but it's your plan and how you're rolling out and not making sure that, that you understand what those needs are. And like you said, maybe taking a a small subset that you can roll it out there first, you know, make sure, make sure that your, your beta or alpha test or whatever and get through. Is that what you see too is, is part of it is, is us not understanding the business is not that it's like it's all in or nothing and, and we will not do that gradual. Do you find that holistically as being an issue on our part? 
I totally agree. I mean, you know, it's it's hard. It requires discipline for us as security leaders. I mean, we see things and we do see things that are on fire and really need to be addressed. Uh, and there's an urgency behind that. And that's a balance that we have to have, right? I mean, we do need to have that sort of outlook and urgency to to be effective, to protect our organizations. But at the same time, if you do that recklessly, you're gonna you're gonna not build advocates, right? And in an MFA rollout thing, right? You could just you could disrupt workforce operations that are critical. You could cause a deluge on your help desk support team. And every time you kind of do one of those, you're gonna lose confidence with all those other organizational departments that are gonna say, this person's gonna go off recklessly and do whatever they want to do. And I'm not gonna get on board unless I have some kind of stake in it or unless I have some kind of influence on the outcome. Um you know, you can, you can, the, the, you know, the, the path to failure is paved with good intent, right? So you can be well intended to try to get something rolled out, but you're not, you're not building advocates in the organization. And I actually feel like it's like, you know, the old saying, like, you know, make sure you reserve a little dry powder. Like you, you want to build up enough organizational confidence that when you do need to hit that nuclear button and say something's wrong and I need to shut something down right now. And I don't have time to ask questions about it, that you have that organizational belief that, you know, you've established a track record of, of being responsible and, and taking us into account um, and understanding the business operations, listen first, act later, uh, that when you do need to do that, you have the leverage too. Yeah. We do see a lot of um, CISOs. I say really reevaluating <laughs> their position and this is because some companies out there that might not be supporting you. Maybe it's just the wrong company. But now as we go ahead and we look at more emerging technologies and we see, you know, chat, you know, AI and all the plethora out there and all the plugins and stuff that are coming out there, that our avenues of tech have just gone up exponentially. How do you see that that's being dealt in healthcare holistically? Because healthcare is one of those ones that you're trying to get out of legacy systems that could not be transformed, you know, as we went into COVID, had to be on pause trying to do that and dealing with all the emerging technology just took off on steroids. Yeah. You know, it's a it's a great question. I guess the first thing I would say to it is, you know, you, you kind of have to look at even healthcare as, as different verticals. The the operating maturity point of you know, biomed and, and pharma is it is at a far higher level. The, the operating maturity of sort of the insurance side of the equation on the healthcare side, payers is at a far higher level. And then you look to some of the provider entities, and that that's where it's lagged, right? And a lot of it's because you have hospital groups that have grown by acquisition, and you know, security is, is has been a side function. And on top of it, through the acquisitions, they're trying to manage multiple different technology stacks and operating uh, principles and all of that. A lot of different cultures in the organization, so. It is hard, um, but but even even outside of just healthcare, you know, I, I would say that one of the questions that I've I've been asked by by my executive team and, and even to the board to some degree is kind of like, hey, what keeps you up at night, right? That that old question, you know, is it ransomware? We're scared of ransomware. And I said, well, you know, that's actually when it terrifies us the most. I'm not saying it's not a threat that's imminent, but we have playbooks for it. We've gone through it. We've you know we've seen it. We've responded to it. We have it worked out. How the teams get in a room and, and deal with all of that. You know, we've we've got our backup strategies and we have all the things that we need to do to say, hey, we've looked at this threat and we think we have a plan around it. What concerns me more is exactly what you just said, right? The business problem is the rate at which the business is adopting new technology. So everybody thinks about the adversarial threat, but really sometimes from a security perspective, we're kind of our own or worst enemy because if you think about every new technology that comes into the business, there's usually a business owner who was the one who wanted this for some, whatever purpose. Hopefully there's some kind of technology owner uh, that that helps shepherd it and manage it. And, and whether they live inside the technology department or out of it, there's some kind of technology owner of it. But you very rarely have a very specific sort of security owner of it, right? And so what happens is a security team, you know, they have to understand whatever this new technology is. 
and the underpinnings of it that make it come together, like what's the glue and tape that's holding it together, right? Where the APIs and what kind of scripting is happening there? What is all that doing? And then they have to understand where could the weaknesses be in this thing and, and, and what do we have to look out for there? And then a lot of times they have to learn some kind of ancillary security tooling to do whatever enforcement needs to happen there, right? That's a lot to ask of a small team. And, and whether they're successful or not, we're still held accountable for that. Um, that's a hard enough challenge in a, in a static environment, but no environments are static, right? So in an ideal world, our defense in-depth architecture will be just as dynamic as the threats which, which is presented, but none of us live in an ideal world. Uh, you know, and, 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 you know, AI and gen AI specifically are kind of like jet fuel to that equation. And then what makes it even a little bit harder is, you know, even if my CFO said, gosh, I hear you, I got the message noted, here's $50 million, go hire all the people you need. That's not even easy to, to execute against, right? Because it's not out there. You got to, you got to find that talent. You got to build that talent. You got to look in, in, in unique places to go get the talent and, and, and build it up. So, so it's, it's complex, right? I'm not going to say that it's a simple problem. Yeah, and part of it is the architecture. I think when you look at how we're going to even be able to see where people are connecting, even you look at the firewalls and stuff like that, even though they're next gen, a lot of them didn't have, you know, I want to say the filtering on, it was only like one or two type of, of AI. It wasn't like the thousands are out there and they're coming so quickly that even if you're trying to monitor that in real time, you can't, like we said, we can't block everything. So you have to be able to to get to train the user and you have to really explain to them this stuff is really cool, but it can be really, really dangerous as well. And and bring in different, even acceptable uses and policies and procedures. And I'm not seeing a lot of companies really moving on that. They're putting like one line in their, their acceptable use, like, oh, thou shalt be good about using AI. What, what do you see as big threats on that or what concerns of that? I know that's what keeps me up is there's every time I turn around, I just read there was like another 300 plugins like last night that came out. Yeah. I mean, the, the truth is I, sort of, I, I think AI is a, is a great, use case for what's actually in my mind a slightly larger macro issue which is when we look at our sort of security architectures they tend to be kind of um static in, in terms of the, they're 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 built around this one kind of static environment and what where we really live today is almost all organizations have some flavor of ecosystem of saas applications and data lakes and apis that are connecting to third party entities and and it's it and you kind of have to step up and look at what is this the entirety of this ecosystem how is it working together right how is your identity program facilitating that right are the ssos in the right right place do you have the right api security do you understand what where the data is moving and how and how people are accessing it i mean that's really the game um, so it, it's it's a different look. I mean, when, when I start to talk with security leaders that that I have a lot of respect for, that we work fairly closely with, I mean, I do hear that sort of ecosystem word resonating a lot that like, hey, we're kind of looking at this, not from a simplistic atomic perspective, but like, what is this whole ecosystem? How is it working together? And where do we need to appropriate what are ultimately limited resources? And when you talk about that against against sort of the the, the threat and opportunity of AI, I think you know, what I'm seeing mature organizations doing is saying, look, this is, it's, it's like the internet, like it's here, it's, it's here. And, and you're, we, we're either going to, we're either going to be leveraging it or we're going to get run over by it. And so they're kind of getting there, but, but how to address that user workforce education and establish policy. I mean, I'm seeing, you know, what we're working on is alignment 
amongst all of our executive leaders to say, hey, we all have a stake in this. We all stand to benefit from this and we all stand to lose from this. So it's everyone's responsibility in, in this executive room to make sure that we are pushing the message down to say, hey, you know, notionally, we think that this is really powerful opportunity, but we want to govern the use cases. We want to know where you where you want to use it as a specific vertical. If our sales and marketing team wants to do it or if HR wants to do it or whoever, bring that up. Let us look at it build it into a use case. Now, we were fortunate enough to have some models where we used when we started building our, our data mesh and other things that allowed us to basically put a governance framework in place that privacy, legal security kind of signed off on and says, hey, these are the things we're going to ask for every single time. You can exchange data really rapidly if you need to, because it's going to always run through this sort of governance engine that can do things in real time. You're going to need that real-time kind of capability to, to pull off how to, how to govern it. I mean, it's this balance between having a lot of freedom and autonomy, but this really big audit hammer over here and and governance hammer that can kind of come down and and you can't break you can't break out of that. But really, it was about getting the message out to say, hey, we we want to embrace this, but not just from a security perspective, right? There, there there's a lot of other things. There's copyright infringement challenges. There's mm-hmm. introduction of you know uh, open source code that can that can challenge your own copyrights. There's also you know diminishing returns, right? You can when you're doing these kind of cloud native uh, analytics, you could have data science teams that are running all kinds of analytics that cost money to execute that are producing no fruit, right? So when we would take that back to our CEO or somebody and say, hey, like do we even really want to be running down these use cases? Is there really value here? Because if we do it and we get nothing out of it, you've still spent the money, right? And so you kind of need to bring all those variable parts together into effectively, you know, a collective executive uh, aligned framework for how do how do we adopt this? How do we how do we leverage AI? I mean, the biggest thing is there should be use cases driving it, right? And and then if you have folks go off reservation, you have that alignment across the staff with the leaders to say, hey, knock it off, right? Like we're not joking. Yeah, and I think one of the things that also helps is is forget get out of the one scorecard. Let's break it down by if you have to do it by departments, if you have to do it by people types, and then having that scorecard to actually go up to like globally, if it goes up to you know different places globally, or if it goes up to a leader, and then potentially if that can affect their bonuses, that's another way to kind of tie in that support. But I think having that all one um, scorecard is so you know, per se anymore. I think that helps to unblind that statistic. Do you yeah, agree with that? I, yeah, I, I I do agree. And, you know, those are, those are some lessons we kind of, you know, went through as we were building out sort of our, our data mesh environment and figuring out, hey, we're going to pull data from all these different sources and we got to have this layer where we reconcile it. And then there's this sensitive information environment that nobody can get to. But on the other side of it, there's these kind of sandboxes, which where different audience groups would work, whether that's HR or data science teams or whoever, they kind of sat on the output of this. And we realized really, really quickly that two things had to be solved for in every one of those. One, we we had to we had to understand the use case and 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 justify it and say we support it. And then we had to be, we had to make sure we got right exactly who the folks were that needed to work there, that their job roles were aligned to that, and that they had access, they had appropriate access to the to the minimal amounts of data, right? And every single one of those for every single use case had to be governed through. And then we got to a point, you know, it's it's a lot to build up front. It's kind of one of those things where, you know, it takes you longer to get through use cases one through three than four through 10,000 because uh, you got to build that. And there's there's a lot of balancing, um, you know, people's people's patience. Um, but but it's 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 really a very similar uh, analogous model with with AI adoption. Right. It's it's hey, we want to do it. We got to do it right. It's going to everyone's kind of in this race, but it's like you got to put the right the right guardrails and frameworks in place to, to be able to do it successfully. 
And like you said, you you got to get really work on getting that buy-in where you're not the solo person. But if you can go ahead and you can have eight or nine departments or executives who also back you with that vision, that at least takes some of the burden off of you. And I think that's that'd be really welcome today for a lot of CISOs. Our time, unfortunately, has flown by. So what is the best way for people to go ahead and reach out to you for speaking engagements, advisory roles, and how can they learn more about your company? Sure. So, I mean, obviously go to, go to premisehealth.com. That's our, that's our company uh, website. Love to have you there. Um, for me personally, um, you can, you can find me on LinkedIn, just go to Joey Johnson, uh, premise health and, and, and you'll find me there. Uh, that's the best way. I'm, I'm not, I'm not really huge on, on the socials. I kind of, I'm a little bit more private than that, but you can find me on LinkedIn. That's probably, that's probably the best way. Well, Joey, thanks so much. You are a soulful CXO. All right. Thanks so much. Ben. <laughs>